Welcome to the Technology and Jobs Podcast from the Asian Development Bank. I'm Eric Churchill. In this series, we're taking a look at how the way we work is being changed by technology and what that means for us, for our workplace, and for Asia. Globalization has opened up the world to us as individuals and our region to new markets. It also poses a threat to established industries and ways of doing business. The supply chains that have supported globalization's rise in Asia could come under strain from new technologies that might, for example, make it easier to manufacture products closer to home in industrialized countries. So how could technology affect Asia's vaunted position in the global supply chain? What kind of a challenge does it pose to specific industries and countries? Here to discuss these and other issues are our resident experts, Samir Katiwada and Elisabetta Gentile of ADB's Economic Research Department. I'm also joined today by economic advisor Abdul Abiyad, who will bring his global perspective on what is going on. Welcome to the podcast. Abdul, let's start off. What is this process we call globalization? Globalization is really about uh, trade among countries and that you've, you have goods and services produced in one country and sold elsewhere. The big change over the last two, three decades is that the production processes that, uh, that uh, support the goods and services that we trade have become fragmented. Give so, me an example. Uh, take take uh, something we all carry in with us all the time, uh, a cellular phone or an iPhone. Um, the beginning of that production process starts with R&D in California, where the iPhones are designed. Then you need materials for the iPhone are sourced from all sorts of places. Uh, rare uh, heavy metals from uh, Congo, uh, other rare minerals from Mongolia, other parts including memory chips from Thailand or hard drives from Korea are all brought together and assembled typically in China and then these are shipped all over the world and then that the production process doesn't end there. You still have distribution channels and support channels. So if you think about these production chains or supply chains, again, even production is very globalized nowadays. Okay, so it seems like at the bottom of this, I mean, when we were talking about Asia and Asia's role in globalization, it has been as a source of really cheap labor to do a lot of this work, right? The R&D, as you said, it starts off in the United States, but it's Asia who's assembling this stuff. Actually, another way you can think about it is that it used to be that countries would specialize in goods or services that they were good at. Now you can think of them as specializing in tasks. So that in, in, in this production, you have R&D, you have assembly. And so it's simply that you've broken it up and you're saying, well, who's, who's best at doing the assembly? Well, low-cost countries are. I can see Elizabeth wants to jump in here. Absolutely. I would like to point out how crucial this uh, supply chain has been to giving an opportunity to many developing countries in Asia uh, out of poverty. I, I want to give you a very salient historical examples. The so-called uh, Asian tigers, uh, South Korea, Taipei, China, Hong Kong, China, and Singapore. So for these four countries, it was incredibly uh, difficult to achieve what they have achieved because in order to uh, participate in global trade, they had to set up an entire export industry uh, domestically. So this is why we always study them in history book because what they achieved was amazing. The production chain, the supply chain, allows a country to participate, as Abdul was saying, in global trade just with a task. 
just with one or, or more relatively smaller contributions. Countries now, in order to participate in global uh, trade, don't have to set up an entire export industry anymore. They can contribute at, some, at a certain level with what they have to offer. And developing Asia just happened to be very abundant in people. It's the most populous continent on Earth. And this is what it, the majority of what it has contributed to the supply chain is precisely people. OK, but now we're talking about machines that can replace people, right? So what, what does Asia do when the, the factory can be close to home? The 3D printer is going to produce the uh, hard, hardware for the iPhone and the Gorilla Glass and whatever else goes into it. Samir? Well, you know, uh, that's a very good question, Eric, and it goes back to something we've been looking at uh, here at the ADB, which is, well, it is true that uh, with new technology, the jobs that are mostly comprised of repetitive tasks, we like to call it the routine, routine tasks, yes, those are declining with, with machines. And we see this with our analysis of global supply chains, that indeed, routine employment is going down. Uh, but there are other types of jobs that are being created in that supply chain. Like what? Okay, <laughs> imagine that, in, that, that you implement a technology that is now able, for example, to soldier component on a circuit board where it used to be a worker who, who, who used to do that. But now that factory probably is going to need specialized technicians who understand the functioning of that machine so that they can uh, utilize it, they can uh, maintain it, and they can run diagnostics. In, ca in case of malfunction. So uh, this shows you how the new jobs that are being created require a different skill set with respect to what Samir was talking about, these routine jobs that are relatively easier for machines to, 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 to replicate. Okay, but uh, I thought the whole model was based on sucking up unskilled labor from rural areas, whether, whether it's in China or rural Thailand or rural Bangladesh. Abdul, it sounds like from what Elizabeth is describing, I don't see an uneducated worker from the countryside being able to jump into a factory and do those tasks. It goes back to what we term economic feasibility. So yes, automation uh, is on the rise. There are new technologies coming up. If you think about how far, uh, how how, it, how easy it is for machines to replace, or how cost-effective it is for machines to replace these unskilled workers, we're actually still far from that. Um, even, even technical feasibility is still an is issue. Uh, sewing garments uh, is a repetitive process, but it's not something machines can okay, do. Okay, but let me, let me push back on that, because I, we know that China was once the leader in the world garment industry, and it no, no longer is. Those jobs are moving to Cambodia. Those jobs are moving to Bangladesh. So, so that's a natural process. And in fact, what? So, again, China. The reason it's moved away. I from mean, you China, say natural process. I see unemployment. No. Uh, so, the way how does China address it? And it, China doesn't want to be stuck in low cost labor all the time. And so, what you have seen is that they've benefited from that. And they now need to move into higher value-added products that pay higher wages. So it, you don't want to get stuck in uh, just being a, an area for low-cost manufacture. So China is slowly moving away from that to the benefit of countries that do need, uh, that where, where these jobs are, you, you, uh, 
you repeatedly use the term low-cost labor, but remember from the perspective of a farmer in Bangladesh, these factory jobs uh, give them twice or thrice the income they used to earn. I can see Elizabeth that wants to jump in. Absolutely. Uh, uh, <coughs> Abdul said it beautifully. These low-cost uh, routine jobs uh, for these developing economies are considered a door into global trade. But nobody, as again Abdul was saying, int is interested in doing that indefinitely. So I would like to give you a very powerful visual metaphor for this. Think of the pattern of the flying geese, right? Uh, you can think of China as the goose who is ahead, and uh, and as China matures as an economy and and and, and becomes more sophisticated, uh, it's the geese that is flying behind goose China that begin to to benefit from that. Um, so what, what you are what, what you are seeing, perhaps the way we should frame this question a bit better is, what about all those geese way way in the back? So because of technology, does that mean that those guys who are in the back are never going to benefit from this. I, I'm sure Samir and Abdul here have a lot to contribute, but uh, um, it has been shown already that this is a very unrealistic uh, uh, point of view to, 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 to take. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense for two reasons. Uh, the first reason that comes to mind is that uh, it used to be that uh, uh, firms in uh, in uh, in developed advanced parts of the world were we would call it offshoring production, and the idea was that production was happening on the other side of the world, and then the product was shipped back to the country of origin. You can forget about that. That doesn't exist anymore. So when people are talking about bring jobs back, back where? If, if this phenomenon is about going closer to your consumer, going closer to where your market is going to be, the market is no longer necessarily just in Germany. It's no longer necessarily just in the United States of America. There are, these are actually very saturated markets. But when I look at the, we've got the statistics on who's buying industrial robots and it's Germany, it's China. That, that seems like a process where they're trying to keep Maybe it's the jobs that aren't there, but at least the industries. They want to keep those industries from fleeing their countries, right? You know, if, if I may jump in here, Eric, the, the thing is, you know, to hear those questions, uh, if I may say this, it kind of reminds me of this thing that the economists call lump of, lump of labor fallacy, right? So that assumes that there is a finite number of jobs. So if, you know, people are in their jobs for longer, young people don't, can't really enter, this whole thing, right? And it's been proven wrong many times over. And we show this in our new study. We basically show that new jobs are created in new occupations, new industries, because of technology. It happens. It's an organic process that, that sort of generates new employment opportunities. But the thing is, as, as it goes back to what we were saying earlier, is that, yes, there will be jobs, but we need people to be skilled to take those new jobs, right? that's very important. So when you think of globalization, in the context of globalization, how technology is changing the landscape, look, the thing about looking for a low-cost destination, what have you, labor, material, that will always be the case. Businesses are driven by their bottom line, they'll always do that. And guess what, the robots, yes, China is buying a lot of robots, and, and the, you know, in the, the garment uh, sector in Cambodia is benefiting from it. Now, all of a sudden, the garment factories in, in Cambodia, they're owned by Chinese. You know why? Because the wages of uh, uh, labor in, in Cambodia is much lower. 
right? So the, somebody is benefiting from the from robots taking uh, being bought by China. Okay. So this I, this this process takes place. I don't know. I don't know if I'm all the way there yet, but maybe I'm getting closer. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because I think one of the things we hear all the time here in Manila, we talk about the Asian consumer class. I mean, is this a reality? I mean, can Asian consumers make up for the, 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 if these jobs are reshored, for example, to the United States or Australia? I mean, is, is this a reality? Quick answer is yes. Emerging markets, in particular developing Asia, account for the bulk of, of GDP or income growth nowadays. And so, in fact, many factories moved here not just for low-cost labor, but because they wanted to be close to these markets. And it's still going to be the case over the next decade, two decades, that much of the growth you will see is in these countries. Samir, you wanted to jump in. Just to add to what Ablu was saying, in terms of when you started off by talking about the consumer class uh, in Asia, and, and Abdul rightly, rightly pointed out that the global growth comes, a, a large part of it comes from this part of the world. You know, when you look at the revenue stream of some of the luxury brands, uh, LVMH is a good example, right? If you look at their revenue stream, you know, we, you know where it's coming from? It's coming from places like China. Mm-hmm. You know, so yep. that, those are the people that are buying your Louis Vuitton bags. So they're buying in droves. They're buying in large numbers, right? That's what's happening. Yes, technology is displacing jobs. But as it turns out, as people get richer, they demand more goods and services. Okay, so this is, this is like the ATM. It creates more bank tellers, right? right? Is that, right. that, that the that's idea? That's a classic example where, you know, when ba- uh, ATMs were introduced in the U.S., everyone thought bank tellers would lose their jobs. But as it turns out, banks were able to open more branches because now the cost of running a bank branch was much lower. Hence, they needed more tellers as well in those new branches, right? So actually, the number of jobs, bank teller jobs, didn't didn't go down. Similarly, you could think of it in a similar way in in the context of uh, Asia, in developing Asia. As it gets richer, there will be jobs created even in industries and occupations that we think that might disappear because of new technology. No. They will not disappear because of new technology. Okay, so I, I, I'm getting closer to being convinced, but I'm still I'm still worried about the losers here because there's some people who are. N- I I can tell in Metro Manila, there are a lot of people who are not going out and buying Louis Vuitton handbags, right? What happens to those who are left behind by this process? There is an an aspect I think of this that hasn't been considered. Uh, because Asia is such a diverse region, a lot of uh, there are. Let's look at the demographics, for example. You have Asian economies that are already suffering from population aging, and you have Asian economies that have this youth bulge, this, these young generations uh, whose skill profiles don't necessarily find any outlet in their home, home country. This is creating a situation in which in some countries, technology is even needed to fill the gap in the labor market, uh, where in other countries there is this excess labor that they don't know what to do with. So in this context, a lot of the losers, as you, as you define them, could find a great outlet if, just, if the region just leveraged more labor mobility. The region right now is some of the most closed 
uh, in terms of favoring uh, flows of labor uh, uh, across the border. And interestingly enough, if you look at statistics, you see a country like the Philippines is one of the largest exporters of, of human capital, of workers all over the world. But Filipinos find, this, find it the most difficult to, to migrate within Asia. So why am I saying this? I'm saying this because a lot of these imbalances of these uh, surpluses of workers that are, for example, on a low skill, uh, uh, on a lower skill range, could find outlets uh, of employment, of make, building themselves a better life in other countries that desperately need them. But we are finding a lot of economies right now where they would prefer to fill their homes with robots rather than bringing in some fresh blood from other countries. So let me get back to your your question was about the costs and benefits and how those are distributed. Um, I fully agree with that. My, um, we as economists have made the mistake, both on glo globalization and technology in the past, of, of just focusing on, yes, this is a net plus, let's go ahead with it. Same, so here again, as we talk about technology and automation, we do have to recognize there will be losers. Some people are at risk of losing their jobs. And let's not make the same mistake of uh, bypassing them or just, you know, but uh, papering over those issues. So it is critical that people who are at risk of losing their jobs are reskilled, retrained so that they can do those other jobs, those new jobs that Samir was talking about. Samir? I just wanted to add to that. You know, when you look at, when you talk about losers and winners from globalization, right? And now you throw in new technology and the fourth industrial revolution in the mix. You know, you know what I'm most fearful for uh, and worried about are the low-income countries, like my own, like Nepal. The thing is, because of new technology, what is, what is going to happen is that it's going to be even more difficult for a country like that to sort of produce goods and services that they can export to join the global sort of supply chain, uh, the network of trade. It's more difficult. The, the process of industrialization has gotten more expensive because of technology, because of automation. So there's low-income countries like Nepal, Myanmar, Cambodia. Here is where Afghanistan, here w we ought to be worried because these countries might be left behind. So what, so what should a policymaker do? If you're, if you're a policymaker in Nepal, how do you address this? Great question. Look, uh, you know, this is something that uh, I have been thinking about lately because, you know, now our, we have a new government. They, they want to do, uh, they want to put in place the right set of economic policies. But what do we do, right? So now, now, now uh, industrialization no longer seems like the path that's available uh, for a country like Nepal. So should we go into services? Should we train our workers so they are ready for, to take advantage of new types of jobs that are emerging in services. Should we get into that? Should we learn lessons from sort of BPOs in the Philippines and IT in India? Uh, this is something that they ought to look at this very closely because the traditional model going from agriculture to manufacturing to services might no longer be available for a yeah. country like Nepal. So uh, absolutely right. Um, uh, what it requires then, given that sort of that old uh, model of of development where you go from agriculture to manufacturing to services seems to be disappearing. What you need to ensure, and we've also learned the lesson that governments can't choose, can't pick winners, right? We've, we've seen uh, many disasters with that. It really is all about making your economy and your workforce more adaptable. We don't know what the future brings. You can uh, 
shape your workforce, uh, skill your workforce so that it can adapt. And there, one of the things that the report points to is that you have, so it's, it's ensuring not just sort of basic literacy and basic numeracy, but ensuring these foundational skills of, again, uh, being, a, uh, being able to learn and relearn uh, throughout your life. And that, I think, would be key to uh, making sure that, these, that, our, that our countries can adapt. Elizabeth, I'll give you the last word. Thank you. I want to bring in a positive note as the eternal optimist in the group. And I want to say that some of these technologies, especially digital technologies, are really good news for women in the, work uh, in the workforce. I mean, we are beginning to see statistics from all over the world showing that the introduction of information and communication technology has been a boon uh, for women's employment, that uh, jobs that require social interaction and communication are a boon for women, and, uh, and we now have to bring this to the next level because women are underrepresented in many of the fields that are very technology intensive. So this work has to start from the very early age to make sure that women don't, are not discouraged from pursuing careers in technical and scientific fields because this is how they will maximize the benefit from leveraging technology in the workplace. That's a great note to end this on. In the next episode of ADB's Technology and Jobs podcast, we're going to be continuing this discussion by examining the skills that are going to be needed to manage and prosper in the new world of work. But for now, thanks to Samir Katiwada and Elisabetta Gentile from the Economic Research Department of ADB, along with our special guest, Abdul Abiyad. Additional special thanks today to my co-producer, Andrew Perrin, to our senior researcher, Pima Arizala, our studio technician is Brian Manuel. Richard Myron is our executive producer. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, like, or comment on your favorite podcast app. More information on the issues discussed today are available online at adb.org. And please join our conversation at hashtag futureofwork. <laughs>